Now, um, my topic is uh, supporting uh, the Folger, but I take it that Terry felt that this might be of interest to, to you here at Columbia, uh, since he heard it and asked me to come up and uh, uh, offer it to you. And I, I, it probably, there probably are a lot of ways in which it is uh, becoming more and more relevant. Uh, the Folger, as you know, is an independent research library. And uh, there were palmy days when the independent research libraries lived in one world, uh, uh, an elitist world surrounded by privilege, soft, spongy cushions of money, uh, <clears throat> protected by highly restrictive uh, admissions policies. Uh, and uh, wealthy patrons who uh, were deeply concerned to keep the hoi polloi uh, out of the institution with their grubby hands and their low plebeian minds. Uh, and then there were the university libraries which uh, were connected to dynamic uh, intellectual institutions which uh, were much less exclusive uh, which uh, opened their doors to uh, at least uh, all students as well as uh, faculty, but uh, which were in another way a little more sheltered than the independents because uh, they didn't have to go out and uh, raise their own money. They had these marvelous uh, uh, universities within which they existed, and every now and then the president of the university would get up and talk, give a touching speech about how the library is the intellectual center of the campus and you know and they had pictures of uh, or busts of Plato and Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas and Galileo and all those great intellectual figures uh, on the uh, cornices or the, or the facades of the, the libraries and uh, even more recently uh, these universities a little more heavily pressed by economic uh, realities. The libraries were still the center, the president would still give the speech, and there were the development offices of the university that were going to support the university libraries. Well, things have changed uh, for all of us. Um, the uh, independent libraries over the past uh, 15 years uh, have, have, without exception, or I know of one exception, it's the Linda Hall Library Kansas City, which has so much money, they're embarrassed by it, and they have to invent ways to spend it before the government takes it away. But all the rest of us have suddenly found ourselves in a very hostile uh, environment where we had to uh, make all kinds of joyful noises under the Lord to survive. Uh, and uh, I've noticed uh, a, a new and chillier wind blowing through university campuses. It's a wind which can be characterized by the slogan, every ship on its own bottom. And uh, I have seen a little bit of the effect of that uh, slogan because uh, for several years I was on a visiting committee for the Regenstein Library. And uh, during my period uh, on that committee, uh, the trustees suddenly decided that the library, marvelous central institution though it was, uh, had to pull its own weight and float on its own bottom. So the library suddenly found itself uh, creating its, its own development office, uh, operating uh, independently of the Central University uh, Development Office, uh, and a whole series of programs going along with it. Now, I don't know uh, how typical that is uh, of the situation around the country. Uh, I hope the president of Columbia still gives those inspiring speeches about the library being the spiritual center of the campus, and I hope that you, all of you are still under the umbrella uh, of the Columbia Development Office. Uh, tell me, is, is on your own bottomism, is that a philosophy that is heard at Columbia, or is the library still considered the central concern of the university around here? We have our own quaint vocabulary to describe it, but the... Uh you mean the on-your-own-bottomism? Okay, well then maybe my words will be more relevant to, to your circumstances than, uh, than I thought. Uh, 
I guess I might begin by saying that uh, 15 years ago I was happily teaching English at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and at that time it seemed to me that an unassailable fact of life, that the humanities were the center of the higher education curriculum, that English literature was the center of the humanities, that the Renaissance was the center of English, and that Shakespeare was the center of the Renaissance. It was like being the Earth in the Ptolemaic system of astronomy. Uh, there were things out there beyond the primum mobile of the campus boundary called the public, but if I thought of them in those days, I, I suppose I assumed that the chief interest of those creatures, uh, like the interest of God and the angels who exist beyond the primum mobile in the Ptolemaic system, was the welfare of everything inside the prima mobile, and particularly the creatures at the center. Now, I'm going on 14 years as the director of the Folger. Actually, I'm going off 14 years as the director of the Folger, and I've learned to look at things a little differently. I see first that education is not the center of society's interests, but one of a competing group of uh, interests including, among others, uh, business and religion and law and health care and transportation, advanced research, uh, the military, uh, entertainment, welfare, etc. And all these are divided into thousands and thousands of uh, subcategories. And although education is uh, socially important, we all agree to that, it doesn't have the life and death importance of health care or welfare or national defense, uh, or business as a source of wealth. Now, it contributes to all these things by educating people who become uh, lawyers and physicians and uh, soldiers and so on. Uh, but in hard times, the interest of education can be put at the bottom of the priority list of society on the theory that once things are back to normal, uh, you can pump some more money into it and whatever uh, lag you've created by your cuts can be uh, made up. And I think that's what's been happening over the past uh, decade and a half to education uh, from kindergarten through graduate school, and I certainly think uh, libraries have shared in that uh, situation. Now, within education, uh, the humanities long enjoyed a privileged status that they inherited from the humanists of the Renaissance. Uh, this status began to be questioned during the activist years of the 1960s. Uh, and in the 1970s, as you all know, the times got harder, and the calls for political action tended to subside, uh, but they were replaced by increasingly loud calls for vocational uh, education, which uh, seems to me uh, mostly boils down to preparation for... Uh, business and for a rather narrow cross-section of professions that uh, college students are vying for right now, whether those professions are going to actually, actually have the jobs or not when, when the college students graduate. At any rate, uh, uh, this situation had the effect of pushing the humanities from the center of the curriculum to the suburbs, uh, and humanists were left staring in bewilderment at empty classrooms, notices of canceled seminars, and then in absolute consternation at termination notices based upon declarations of financial exigency. And I've lived through that very definitely. I was a trustee for 10 years of the University of Detroit, which is a Jesuit institution out in Detroit, you know, center of the industrial muscle of the United States. For those 10 years, it was an institution with an impeccable record of downward mobility. <laughs> Not, I hope, because I was a trustee, but the times were huh, tough. And the, th the people in that institution who were most downwardly mobile were the people in the arts and sciences school, and in that group, the, peop the people who suffered most were the people in the humanities. Now, I don't think the humanists organized a very effective counterattack. They published uh, stirring declarations with titles like uh, Whither the Humanities, 
in journals like uh, the Association of Departments of English Bulletin. But who read these things except other professors? Certainly not the people who exist beyond the primum mobile of the campus boundary. I think the most striking attempt to make a public case for the humanities was the Rockefeller Commission report on the condition of the humanities. And that was organized by people outside of the academy, that is, foundation officials. And it did not appear, it wasn't published until conditions were so bad as to constitute something close to a public scandal. And when it did appear, it was a grievous disappointment. Uh, it is filled with special pleading based on self-interest, disguised as noble morality, and it says very little to the unconverted except that humanists want more money, but then who doesn't? The ineptitude of the humanists in protecting even their own basic interests is typified by the fact that they did not band together to lobby for their main federal source of support, the National Endowment for the Humanities, until the endowment was threatened with drastic budget cuts. The National Humanities Alliance was formed in 1981 when the game was almost lost. By striking contrast, and here I think I'm speaking directly to, uh, to your interests, uh, the American Library Association lobbied uh, very effectively throughout the 70s uh, for library funds uh, in the department, first uh, the department of uh, HEW, Health, Education, Welfare, and later in the Department of Education. And uh, in reference to the two endowments, the American Arts Alliance, uh, which uh, is the lobbying group for the American the National uh, <coughs> Endowment for the Arts, was formed in the early 70s, and it developed a very formidable lobbying expertise uh, long before the crisis. And one of the results there, which will impinge to a certain degree on libraries, because the National Endowment for the Humanities is a, gives money to libraries, one of the uh, byproducts of this difference in lobbying activity is that uh, next year the National Endowment for the Arts will have $40 million more to give away than the National Endowment for the Humanities in spite of the fact that those two organizations started at parity, and in a supreme irony, it was the National Endowment for the Humanities which was started first. And then somebody had the bright idea, well, since they're doing it for the humanities, let's do it uh, for the arts. Now, if I had to identify the root cause of the malaise I have been describing, I would call it privilege. The humanities had, by the late 60s, been too secure for too long, and they had become fat and overconfident. As Sophocles says, those whom the gods would destroy, they first make blind. And that's only too true. Subjects that were supposed, according to the standard arguments of their professors, to be significant for society in general, had become as specialized as physics and statistics. Freshman and sophomore teaching came to be considered an indignity to be visited only on graduate teaching assistants and instructors. And junior and senior courses came to be regarded chiefly as opportunities for recruiting students to graduate school. So there'd be enough people in graduate school so the graduate professors so would be able to justify being kept on and paid. The professors resisted even such modest reforms as pruning old courses from the curriculum as new ones were introduced. Uh, <clears throat> and they defended abuses in public which every one of them would deplore after the second cocktail at a private cocktail party. When the boom was lowered, they had nobody to talk to, and even if they had found somebody, they would have lacked the language to make themselves understood. And even today, in spite of the fact that the National Humanities Alliance exists, the National Endowment for the Humanities owes such continued good health as it has chiefly to a few congressmen like uh, Sid Yates of Illinois, uh, to John Bradamus also, now at uh, NYU, who fought valiantly when he was in the Congress. But these congressmen who fight annual uphill battles to keep appropriations as intact as they possibly can. Now, since coming to the Folger, my concern has been finding support uh, for a humanities library 
in spite of all this uh, malaise, made my problem is going to be a little bit more specialized in the problems that uh, university libraries would face, because they are what I would call full-spectrum libraries. You represent the full spectrum of knowledge. I'm concerned particularly about uh, knowledge, in, or have been concerned particularly about knowledge in the humanities. This happens to be even more specialized in terms of its most fundamental appeal, because it's a Shakespeare library. And uh, there are certain very interesting characteristics about Shakespeare. Uh, I'd say, first of all, that uh, we have to be concerned, even if we think of ourselves just as a Shakespeare library, which is too narrow, we have to be concerned about what's uh, going on in all of the humanities, because uh, Shakespeare doesn't exist in a vacuum any more than Dante does, or Rabelais does, uh, or what have you. Uh, the fate of Shakespeare is bound up with uh, the health of the humanities in general. Uh, this is true particularly because uh, if you want to study Shakespeare, you have to know a little bit about Shakespeare's contemporaries. You have to know about uh, the uh, history of uh, other literatures and English literature during uh, the Renaissance. You have to know a little bit about the history of religion and the history of ideas, the history of theater and uh, theater architecture. It doesn't hurt to have read a little bit of Aristotle or even uh, a little bit of uh, Foucault or Derrida so that uh, if the humanity, even if Shakespeare were prospering, if the rest of the humanities were withering away, Shakespeare would most emphatically uh, suffer. So we are concerned uh, about uh, the rest of the humanities, and, and we kind of wish the humanists had been a little bit more articulate and energetic uh, during the period I'm talking about. But uh, there's another fact uh, about Shakespeare, and that is uh, that uh, Shakespeare is a dramatist. Part of the decline in the humanities today, I think, is a corollary of a general decline of what might be described as book culture. The humanities are, for the most part, rooted in books. Shakespeare, on the other hand, exists in performance as well as books. And this makes Shakespeare very special and gave us some opportunities to the Folger. Shakespeare is owned by the public that goes to performances as well as by the academy. Um, I think uh, this fact is recognized in the organization of American culture by something which I might call double-entry bookkeeping. Shakespeare appears in the curriculum of every college and university in two places. Once uh, in the English department and once in the department of dramatic art. And that double-entry bookkeeping is repeated uh, in terms of the uh, structure that supports culture, particularly in the federal government, by the fact that uh, Shakespeare also uh, tends to appear twice in the funding agencies for culture. At the federal level, you find Shakespeare supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities when Shakespeare is in books, and by the National Endowment for the Arts when Shakespeare is on uh, the stage. And this public aspect of Shakespeare is also reflected by the popularity of Shakespeare festivals that uh, were very rare before World War II. I know of only one that existed before World War II, and that's uh, the Stratford, I mean the Ashland, Oregon uh, Festival. But that extend today from Dallas, Texas to Stratford, Ontario, and from Wilmington, North Carolina to Ashland, Oregon. It's expressed in the ability of Shakespeare to adapt to non-print culture, hence uh, popular culture. Shakespeare crossed the barrier between stage and film before World War I, and he was on the tube almost as soon as television became a significant cultural medium. Olivier's Henry V was the first of a very brilliant uh, post-war series which proved that Shakespeare, when you produce him well, can be really lively property at the movie box office. That film was followed by films like Mankiewicz's Julius Caesar and uh, Zeffirelli's uh, Romeo and Juliet and Polanski's Macbeth, which were all produced uh, commercially. I might say that Polanski's Macbeth was produced by Playboy magazine. And if that doesn't say something about the public aspect of Shakespeare, I don't know what does. 
Now, I think these films are far more significant of the evidence of uh, Shakespeare's position as a public figure in today's culture than the BBC Shakespeare series, uh, which is sheltered by subsidies, uh, and it's shown on subsidized television. I think the public success of Shakespeare is enhanced by the fact that most Americans and Englishmen encountered him at an early age in the classroom, but uh, as I've been going around the country over the past 15 years, I've encountered one heck of a lot of people who said, Shakespeare bored me to tears before I saw Olivier's Henry V or Zeffirelli's Romeo or Juliet or what have you. And it may be that the Academy did as much to kill Shakespeare as it did to preserve him. Uh, now, before 1965, I knew personally only one Shakespeare teacher who was passionately and volubly committed to the public Shakespeare. I think there were others, but they were few and far between, and I just hadn't met them. The teacher I have in mind is Alan Downer. Maybe some of you in this room knew uh, Alan. Uh, he was at Princeton. Uh, he was an actor, a director, a playwright, uh, a man who attended the theater promiscuously, uh, as well as a fine scholar and a brilliant uh, lecturer. When he spoke about Shakespeare at Princeton, he could speak about Shakespeare as a public figure in addition to talking about textual criticism and Coleridge's uh, view of uh, Shakespeare's dramas, Bradley's view of Shakespeare's dramas, and all the other things that uh, you're exposed to in a graduate course in Shakespeare. But uh, most of the professors I knew uh, didn't have that authority, and they were not really not interested in the theater. Now, obviously, in New York City, it's quite a different matter, but remember that most of these professors, this is not necessarily a fundamental criticism of them. Most of them were living in places like Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and maybe once a year they could get up to New York, and maybe once every 10 years they get up to New York and there was a really good Shakespeare play being performed, and they would see that. But for the most part, they just didn't have any opportunity to see Shakespeare uh, in performance beyond uh, what uh, the local theater company, which at Chapel Hill was called the Playmakers, could do. And occasionally they did reasonably respectable performances, but it wasn't professional theater by a long sight. At any rate, uh, today the public Shakespeare, Shakespeare uh, on the stage and in the movies, is probably the hottest topic in the Shakespeare business. Today, English professors will travel hundreds of miles to attend performances of Shakespeare. Uh, they will use a film and videotape when they teach uh, classes uh, about Shakespeare. And they'll even encourage their students to do uh, sort of uh, uh, thumbnail performances of little bits and pieces from the plays in order to get a deeper insight into these plays uh, as living drama. My impression is that uh, professional dramatists are a little bit suspicious of this sudden bonhomie from the professors, but uh, generally they cooperate with a goodwill, uh, and uh, they're willing to, to go along with it. Now, all this is to say that uh, when people in the Shakespeare business, including the Folger Library, seek support, money, they have a lot more going for them than people who are in other parts uh, of the humanities. Their author is a public figure as well as a certified academic uh, classic. And because of the direction of Shakespeare studies in the last two decades, they can talk about him in a public language. People understand what they say and they know how to use that language when talking to people. Uh, they can when they go to foundations and other supporting agencies, they can promise something that few other humanists can author, offer today, namely a product that the public wants. Now I could continue this talk by describing the allocation of monies that Americans make for cultural activities, including libraries. And along the way, I could list a few likely sources of funding in case any of you are in the uh, business of uh, looking for money. But I, I think statistics and lists uh, are of foundations and other sources are not really very useful guides to fundraising. Uh, it's been my experience in fundraising that every project and every institution is unique. 
Each institution and each project must be matched in a unique way against a list of possible funding sources. Moreover, every moderately ambitious project can be analyzed into a series of sub-projects so that, for example, if you plan to, oh, let's say, produce a play, you're looking around for money to produce a play, you can think of that as one project or you can think of it as a series of projects including uh, costumes, uh, theatrical music, uh, rental of uh, performance space, uh, sets, set designs and sets, salaries for actors and directors and so on and so forth and you can you can go after money for each of these individual parts of the project and try to make the project by putting them together see if you can reach a critical mass that way it is also true that a great many foundations and this is something you discover with shock and horror as you get into this business unless you happen to be fortunate enough to live in new york city uh, it is true that many foundations limit their uh, benevolence to a particular geographical district uh, so that uh, if you happen to live in Washington, D.C. and you go to Philadelphia, you'll find that they will tell you, sorry, fellas, we don't even know the District of Columbia exists. Now, New York, some of the big New York foundations are very generous, and they are generally exceptions to the, to the rule, but it is true that people in New York can count on a greater degree of benevolence from foundations than uh, people in most other parts of the country. Uh, I think the uh, first task of anybody looking for support for a major project, support for a library, for example, is to draw up a list of sources, but uh, adjust the sources to the nature of the project and the location of the institution where the project uh, is being uh, carried out and to the interests of the particular source that is being approached. Some foundations will support music, but they won't support poetry. Some will fund, purchase book, fund, uh, support book purchases, but they won't support book exhibitions, and so on and so forth. You have to understand all that before you can start making intelligent choices. And if this task is beyond the expertise of those who are trying to draw up the list, uh, then they need advice from a consultant or from their friendly campus a development officer. Hopefully he's friendly, or she is friendly. Now, therefore, instead of offering you statistics and lists, I'd like to offer uh, what the business schools call a case study. And my case is that of the Folger Library. I promise to be brief, and I promise to emphasize those aspects of my case study that have exemplary value, some value that might be transferred to other institutions. And the moral of what follows is that the key elements of a campaign to find support for an institution like the Folger Library have very little to do initially with asking people for money and an enormous amount to do with planning and constituency development. I came to the Folger in 1969 uh, as most of you know, the library was at that time internationally distinguished for its collection and its support of scholarship, and it was also a relatively wealthy institution. Between its opening in 1932 and 1969, when I arrived, uh, it, had, it was so wealthy that it didn't need to raise money, and as far, the, the best of my ability to go through the, 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 the archives uh, I think the sum total of the money that it had been raised, cash money that it had raised between 1932 and 1969 was $25,000. Plus, of course, a scattering of gifts in kind, some of them very fine gifts in kind. Uh, the annual budget was around $900,000, and the annual endowment income was almost identical to that. And I'd have to say that the last thing in the world I planned to do when I came to the Folger Library was become a fundraiser, start looking for money. And because of that, my first two years at the Folger were an extremely exciting learning experience. <laughs> the first thing I learned was that I was going to have to raise money. But uh, let me be a little more particular. 
As I began to familiarize myself with the institution I had joined, I discovered uh, that the physical plant urgently needed attention. Conservation conditions were, if I say poor, uh, that's too, uh, not, not strong enough uh, a word. We were recording temperatures of 95 degrees in the rare book areas, and the humidity would bounce from 20% in the winter with the steam on to 90% in one of those nice, soggy Washington summers. Uh, the stacks were overflowing. Uh, they, they'd put books piecemeal hither and thither, and you know, they had rare books in 10 different locations. So it was impossible to monitor who went in and who went out of the rare book areas. The reading room was overcrowded during periods of peak readership, so they had to stash readers throughout the stacks where they couldn't really be uh, monitored. And uh, there was, in effect, no fire protection at all. Fire protection was limited to some uh, uh, chemical fire extinguishers which were hung on the end of the stacks, which I discovered were not even checked annually, so that if you pull the trigger on one of them, probably wouldn't nothing would happen. As far as any automatic fire detection equipment, it wasn't there. Uh, now, once when I recognized what the seriousness of that problem, renovation uh, of the building became the hub around which all of the other plans tended to revolve. Uh, second problem, the library was isolated uh, from its community. That was a legacy of wealth and privilege and of the elitist uh, attitude which had characterized these independent research libraries uh, in the 30s and uh, uh, even to a certain degree uh, uh, in, in the 50s. The exhibitions and occasional lectures that were offered had very little public appeal. It was a great evening if 30 people showed up for a lecture. Um, <clears throat> The library didn't even have a Friends of the Library uh, organization. Uh, and uh, it was doing nothing, certainly, that uh, could be considered as giving back to the community some of the support that the community was giving through its tax exemption uh, and other kinds of uh, support. Uh, well, that's, that's bad enough. I mean, uh, but the worst thing is when to find yourself in desperate need of very, very large sums of money and nobody knows your name. Who are you going to ask? Uh, third, the library was governed by trustees who lived for the most part in Boston and New York. The uh, governance of the library is the trustees of Amherst College. Now, those trustees were intelligent and conscientious gentlemen, but their sense of the real relations of the Folger with the community around it was necessarily very, very uh, hazy. Most of them uh, didn't think about the Folger except once a year when we had an annual meeting of the trustees uh, at uh, the Folger Library. And the length of time devoted during that meeting to the Folger Library was about an hour and a half. So that's the amount of attention we had in the course of, of a close attention we had in the course of a year. It's not a criticism of the trustees, it's a criticism of the structure, which made it impossible for the trustees to be fully aware of what we were doing. And the problems of deferred maintenance, isolation, and governance were interrelated. If the plant was to be renovated, very substantial sums of money would be needed. To locate it, this support required understanding of the library among groups who were, in 1969, either indifferent to it or unaware of its existence or mystified by it particularly the taxi drivers. They were really mystified by it. You, you get on a, in a taxi at National Airport, you say, take me to the Folger. You say, what's the Folger? And he'd come, and he'd come to the building. He'd say, gee, that's a nice-looking building. What is it? What goes on inside of it? Among other things, they allowed shrubs to grow up over the sign that said Folger Shakespeare Library. <laughs> <laughs> took, it took, that was one of my greatest triumphs, getting those shrubs torn down, because we had passionate ecologists late, late by the time we got around to our construction and they didn't want to tear those shrubs down. So I told the architect, I, said, I was going off for a weekend, I said, look, don't tear those shrubs down while I am gone for the weekend. Do you understand me? He said, I understand you completely. And when, when I came back, they were all torn down and I said to all these passionate ecologists, I said, gee, there's nothing I could do about it. I told the architect not to. 
and so on and so forth. But, but I mean, letting, letting the shrubs cover the name of the library was sort of uh, uh, typical. And now, creating understanding of, at, at various, in various uh, areas uh, required two related strategies. First off, the library needed to sponsor programs that were interesting to the general public. Personally, I think the Folger would have needed to do this even if there had been no building program uh, nor any financial problem, because I think an institution like the Folger has to return something to the community that draws benefits from it. But in the Folger's case, I think morality and self-interest were close allied. Public programs would begin to create a grassroots constituency, and this in turn would give the Folger credibility in the eyes of community leaders. The Folger also had to make a case with individuals and officials who were in a position to pr provide support on a large scale. And the isolation of the Folger was frustrating uh, uh, both tactics. Obviously, the massive fundraising that would be required for the plant could not be undertaken until the problem of isolation had been addressed. Adding local trustees was also very desirable, but uh, it would have to wait until the existing board better understood the governance problem and had enough confidence in the library's administration to be willing to uh, discuss it uh, dispassionately. Uh, therefore, the isolation from the community problem seemed the logical place to start, and in 1970, we created a Friends of the Library uh, organization, uh, and uh, at the end of the first year, we had about uh, 75 friends who were very valuable, but uh, we could see that we were beginning of a very long, tough kind of campaign to get it up to significant uh, numbers. We also uh, created a public programs department, which we said was going to be responsible for scheduling events of genuine interest to, to the public and for publicizing uh, these events and for creating an organ for communication uh, uh, by the library to the constituencies that we hoped would eventually be out there. Now, please note that none of the actions setting up the friends, setting up a public programs department, telling them to think about events that would be interesting to the public, communication, public relations. None of these things was very expensive. Uh, the cost of the new department was kept to a very minimum by shifting job descriptions around. But when the public programs department started to mount programs, things changed very swiftly. Uh, the Folger was then and still is in competition with every other cultural institution in Washington, and if it was going to have public programs, they had to be competitive, which means professional. Mounting first-rate programs forced us to confront a fact of life of the performing arts, which is that the income derived from a program, even a very successful one, seldom offsets its expenses. Now, arts organizations do not call the difference between income and cost a loss or deficit. They call it an income gap. And it is the income gap that drives them into the gifts and grants marketplace. And the Folger's income gap was no exception. It forced the Folger to start learning the mysteries of fundraising. Staff members began to acquire knowledge of who was who in the world around them, of foundations and corporations, and they began taking projects to these people they had identified, and uh, two things happened. In the first place, when we took these projects out, we began to learn a great deal about public perceptions of the Folger Library, and not by any means all of it was uh, flattering. But even if it wasn't flattering, it was always useful. And second, in the course of doing this, we were able to tell a lot of people uh, what we were up to. Uh, and although people frequently turned us down, and that's a fact of life, and a very bitter fact of life, particularly when you're first starting out in this kind of business, but uh, even the people who turned us down had listened to us, and time and time again it's happened that we've gone back to these people four, or five, or six years later, and we've gone back, they knew who we were, and they knew a little bit about us, and we started off as friends, rather than as strangers. Now, the Public Programs Department was the beginning of the Folgers' grassroots constituency. 
In carrying out its mandate, we made every mistake in the book except what I consider to be the most fatal of all mistakes, that is, sitting around doing nothing and complaining that nothing can be done. That's not only the worst of all mistakes, it's probably the, the most typical of mistakes. Now, one of our mistakes might be called the reach versus grasp error. And it turned out in the long run to be beneficial to us rather than harmful. Our aspirations constantly exceeded uh, our resources. As a result, we were driven farther and farther into the gifts and grants world. Now, on the one hand, this created enormous anxiety on all sides. But on the other, it forced us continuously to enlarge our circle of acquaintances. As the relationships we formed deepened, some of them became alliances. And every now and then we would discover something which uh, is pretty consistently happening today. We found that you could convert the fundraising into a two-way street. There were things which we could do for people that they wanted done, as well as they're doing things for us. And that was a very satisfying, interesting uh, discovery. A corollary of our increasing involvement in gifts and grants was the development in 19, the establishment in 1974 of a development office. It's the first time I'd ever had much to do with a development office. Since the development office was an expense, it created additional pressures on the budget, but it also supplied personnel specifically assigned to fundraising. Now, when we established it, I naively thought that its job was to go out and find gifts and grants. I thought we were going to say the development officer get money, and he would take a canvas bag, and he was going to go out, he was going to come back the next day with a canvas bag filled with money. Uh, I discovered, first to my consternation, but uh, then to my pleasure, that the most important job of a development office is helping the institution understand itself. Now, the Folger Library has a theater, and we began a modest, non-professional theater company in 1970 under the auspices of the Public Program Department. The theater eventually grew into a professional equity company offering 320 performances a year of five plays. That theater has been our most expensive outreach activity, our riskiest activity, the source of endless angst, the cause of occasional budget deficits and occasional unfavorable reviews in the press. It has also been our most popular public program, the cause of many enthusiastic reviews in the press, and the source of an enormous amount of pleasure for the public and much pride for the Folger. It is very difficult to make an objective evaluation of the pluses and minuses of that theater but my personal feeling is that if we just limit ourselves to the bottom line, the theater has brought in at least $3 for every dollar spent on it, and that as far as the Folgers' mission is concerned, the theater's productions of Shakespeare and other classic dramatists are its most useful service, are the Folgers' most useful service to the general public and to the schools of the greater Washington area. Now, as the friends and the public programs in the theater began to grow, and as the gifts and grants program began to intensify, the need for trustees who were prominent and active in the Washington area naturally became more and more obvious. And there came a time when we brought this to the attention of the board, and I think we were very fortunate in having a board that was willing to take the steps necessary to confront it. In essence, the board said there are going to be six Amherst trustees, but there are going to be 12 public members from the greater Washington area. And the Amherst trustees would share the burden of the governance of the library with those 12 public trustees, and that public members from the greater Washington area. And the Amherst trustees would share the burden of the governance of the library with those 12 public trustees, and that created what is called the Folger Committee, and is one of the greatest things uh, that ever happened uh, to us, in my opinion. 
1976, public outreach and development and governance had attained a maturity sufficient to justify moving ahead on what I've already identified as our basic problem, which was the condition of the plan. To say that everyone was supremely confident as we embarked on this project would be a gross exaggeration, but by that time, we had gained something like what uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge once called that willing suspension of disbelief that constitutes poetic faith. We were able to move ahead in spite of the economic stagnation and intense inflationary pressures which were tearing away at uh, everybody uh, during that uh, period. And we were able to maintain our regular programs, including this greatly enlarged public uh, dimension to our activities, at the same time that we were seeking massive gifts and grants to underwrite uh, the capital needs. In the process, we called on every bit of expertise, including expertise in prayer, uh, that we had developed in the preceding years, and we were, in the end, successful. And I think there are three basic reasons for our success. We'd gotten our house in order. That uh, people understood and approved of everything that went on in the Folger. A lot of it is by nature very recherche and esoteric. But they understood what the Folger was about uh, through those uh, public programs. And when they looked at the building plans that were the basis of our request for capital support, they also understand that we had gone to very considerable lengths to get something which was not just adequate, but uh, was very, very elegant. Now, the Folgers finally come to the end of that building program. Thanks to a major bequest that we received two years ago from a member who was on the Council of the Friends of the Folger Library and who had never even heard of us without establishing the Friends, and to a recent challenge grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the funding as well as the construction uh, uh, are completed. Um, if you want a summary of what we did in, in 14 years, we raised about $30 million in programmatic money and $8.5 million in building money. I've so far I've spoken mostly of public programs and governance and raising money for building and that kind of thing. Uh, in my uh, more private moments, I still like to think of myself as a scholar. And I hope from the beginning that by strengthening the Folgers ties with the community, we would strengthen it as a library and a center for research. And in fact, uh, I think the development of those public constituencies had an enormously positive effect on that central mission. We now have an institute for Renaissance and 18th century studies, which started from zero in 1970, and now is supported by dues from 21 universities, ranging from Yale, Rutgers, and Princeton in the north, to the University of South Carolina in the South. I'm not sure that Columbia has applied for admission, but uh, we'd be glad to consider the application if it came our way. Uh, <clears throat> that has very much deepened our relationship uh, with the research faculties and the graduate students uh, on those campuses, and it's greatly quickened the intellectual pace of the scholarship uh, uh, that, uh, that goes on. The building program has doubled the amount of reader space. Uh, it's more than doubled uh, the amount of stack space. It's provided state-of-the-art uh, fire protection, uh, conservation conditions, and security from theft uh, uh, for the collection. Uh, and it's provided us with one of the finest small conservation facilities uh, in the United States of America. I think even Mr. Paul Banks at Columbia University would be impressed by what we got down there. Uh, we've also greatly increased the pace of uh, gifts in kind. During one year, our uh, 50th anniversary year, uh, we received over $200,000 worth of gifts in kind, very fine books, and uh, over $50,000 in gifts for cash earmarked for uh, the acquisitions program. And uh, just uh, last week, a lady uh, brought in a uh, beautiful uh, hand-illustrated Bible with a great many woodcuts, uh, 1483. Just a magnificent uh, item. And all these come from the friends. Now, my case study is complete, as far as I'm going to sketch it in. 
It shows, I think, that uh, fundraising for a place like the Folger is not so much a matter of looking for money as looking at yourself. The Folger did not exceed because it asked everybody in sight for money. I think in the early 70s I was inclined strongly to that strategy and I quickly found out that it was the, the, the easiest way to get a swift exit from any door that you had managed to, to penetrate. It succeeded because it identified its problems, it developed appropriate constituencies, and it explained itself in a public language, a language that the people it was talking to could understand. Now, I suspect that the Folgers experience is more typical than unique, so I conclude that if you want to find support for libraries or for the humanities or other good cultural projects, you should be as prepared to listen during your quest as to talk, uh, and you have to accept the fact that you've got to change yourself even as you're trying to change the attitudes of others. Uh, I should add two things. First, uh, the campaign of the last 14 years had one totally unforeseen consequence. I worked myself out of a job. I suddenly realized last summer that everything I wanted to do in 1969 was done. So I'm going to be leaving the Folger Library on December 31st, going to Georgetown University and start teaching again. Uh, second, the second point, I have to confess that I've left one very important character out of my script. The character is the goddess Fortuna. You can do everything right, and if the goddess Fortuna frowns, you will fail. You can do everything wrong, and if she smiles, you're going to win anyway. Uh, I think... Uh, Antonio learned this lesson uh, in The Merchant of Venice since uh, I started out, my title was from uh, Othello. I thought I ought to end with a more positive uh, note. Uh, if the goddess Fortuna smiles, uh, you may find that even though you have chosen a leaden casket, when you open it, you will hear the divine words of Portia. You shall have gold to pay the petty debt 20 times over.